Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Hi, this is Stephen Nill, CEO of CharityChannel.com. So, you want your charity to succeed. You came to the right place. Integration of online and offline techniques is the key to your successful fundraising, and practical advice on going green is what you need. With this show, The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, you will learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Our host is Ted Hart, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. This year, he is celebrating 25 years in the nonprofit sector and the 10-year anniversary of his firm, TedHart.com. His books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. His guests are leaders in their field who will share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management, green strategy, and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, here's Ted. And good afternoon. This is Ted Hart, and I'm coming to you live from the nation's capital. This is Monday, November 22nd. You are live here with the nonprofit coach, and as always, we start with the news. Towards 
the end of the year. A lot of organizations uh, do have calendar year uh, for their fiscal year. Uh, and what they're going to be talking about is why books and records are necessary, how the IRS defines books and records, what specific type of records are needed, and how books and records should be maintained. So this is really a must for all organizations, particularly small organizations that don't have a staff that's helping them uh, take care of these records. It is important that we have very strong donor records and financial records for our organization. So check this out. You can register right online uh, for uh, the, uh, the time that works best for you, and you can also email them uh, at nationalphoneforum at IRS. Gov. Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, we have here on page one a couple of studies today, uh, an important study that comes to us from the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Uh, they have just put out the 2010 Study of High Net Worth Philanthropy. Uh, this was performed by the Center on Philanthropy at Indiana State University. Uh, and what's important here, and one of the, the findings uh, is not really surprising. It's just nice to see that what works in philanthropy, what we all have been trained to know uh, works in philanthropy, does also work with rich people as well. And that is specifically when individuals volunteer, uh, they also tend to give more money uh, than those who do not volunteer. But of course, when the wealthier giving, that comes in bigger pots of money. So specifically what they found is that volunteers who give more than 200 hours uh, and are in uh, the category of the rich, their average giving is 75, almost $76,000 on an annual basis. Uh, compared to those who do not volunteer, that drops down uh, to $46,000. So lots of really good information. Uh, this was uh, sourced to us by the New York Times and is reported uh, via the nonprofit quarterly. And, of course, you can find this along with all of our radio links over at tedhartradio.com. Uh, don't forget, again, today I can just see uh, uh, quite a uh, number of people over in the chat room, uh, so don't miss the opportunity to uh, join us over in the chat room. You can ask questions there. When we get to page two, once again, you'll be able to ask a question of our page two expert today, and that's 347 324-3080. Uh, uh, again, back here on page one here at the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, the next study that I want to share with you today comes to us uh, reported by the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Uh, this is, uh, again, a very important study that just helps us start rounding out the information that we need to be good fundraisers uh, in the nonprofit sector. And this study, uh, which was uh, just released last week, uh, comes to us from the Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund and Ernst & Young. And what they were specifically looking at was uh, the giving habits of entrepreneurs. Uh, and what they found in this study uh, is that entrepreneurs gave twice as much of their profits to charity as more established companies. So when you're looking for those new new opportunities, when you're looking for uh, those elusive dollars, uh, don't miss out on the chance to look in your local community for those new entrepreneurs. Nine out of ten of the uh, 146 entrepreneurs that were in the study were male. Uh, and their average age was 58 uh, years of age. Uh, and uh, in this study uh, that uh, was done, their companies generated a median of $100 million annually. So read all about this important study just released and uh, reported over in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. You can find this along with all of our links uh, here from page one uh, over at the radio links at Ted Hart. 
www.blogtalkradio.com. Uh, next up here on page one is we've got an opportunity uh, to have a report that comes uh, to us uh, following up on uh, those of you who have been with us for a while may remember our show on October 5th. We had an excellent guest uh, that day by the name of Bruce Birch, uh, who is a nationally recognized expert in cause marketing. Uh, and Bruce is going to join us back here on page one of the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, Bruce Birch, you're here live on the Nonprofit Coach. Are you here with us? Yes, Ted, I am, and good afternoon, and nice to talk with you again. Hey, Bruce, great to have you back here on the Nonprofit Coach, and we've got you coming back here on page one uh, because uh, back in October you shared with us that you were uh, doing a uh, study, you were doing a, a report, and I believe you've got uh, an update for us on uh, your cause marketing report. Yes, we do, Ted. It was interesting. We, it's called the Birch Report. It's, this was the 2010 Cause Marketing Nonprofit Survey. And it was very interesting. We did this in the fall of 2009 for the first time and, and just finished it. As a matter of fact, this is the very first release of the information. We just com- finished compiling it over the weekend, so very timely. Uh, and it was very interesting. First, I, I, I'm excited that you're choosing to use the nonprofit coach as a way to start getting the word out about this important study. Can you share with us uh, some of the highlights of what you learned uh, in your study? Absolutely. Well, one of the things that we learned was that Again, the vast majority of people that responded were smaller companies, uh, nonprofits. The 23% were in the 1 to 1 million range, and 22% were under 250,000. So again, we only had two companies that were over the $100 million nonprofit range. So vast majority of people, as seems to be natural nationally, are small organizations. Uh, found out again that uh, most of the nonprofits, 26% of them, uh, did not have any uh, full-time development people. 25% had one. Uh, 22% had uh, uh, two. So again, the vast majority of nonprofits having less than two. Uh, of people that were full-time. In the area of, of marketing and communications personnel, we found out that 47% had no full-time marketing, 25% had one, and 13% had two. So again, the vast majority uh, of through the study found out that most of the nonprofits did not have full-time marketing people. The area that surprised us the most, Ted, was in the area of strategic partnerships. When we did the report last year, we found that 86%, excuse me, 84% of the people surveyed uh, did not have what we called strategic partnerships. Now, by that I mean they might have a corporate donation, they might have a corporate sponsorship, they might have gotten a grant from a company, but they didn't have long-term what we would call cause marketing or strategic philanthropy partnerships. The report this year came back that 55%. 55% said that they did have partnerships, and about 44.5% said that they didn't. So I was honestly a little surprised by that because uh, my understanding of being out there in the world every single day, I just got back from Las Vegas where I was the, the featured speaker for the National Special Olympics Conference, and uh, in uh, talking to most of the chapter heads from around the country, uh, I would say that less, way less than half had cause marketing partnerships. So I was pleased at that number, that the nonprofit community is engaging the corporate community more and more. Uh, a little surprised that it, it jumped that much. Uh, and it was interesting on what they're receiving. Uh, 
just a breakdown here. I said, please check off all that you receive from your partnership relationship with for-profit. 18% were receiving in-kind donations. 18% were receiving funding. 17% were receiving sponsorship of events. Uh, 14% marketing and advertising support, 11% volunteers, and this is growing, which I'm glad to see. The Volunteer Center in San Francisco had a Bay Area Leaders Forum last month, which I was a facilitator at, and the whole area of corporate volunteers is growing, but it's also changing, and I think it's changing in a very, very valuable way for both the for-profit and non-profit partners. But what was great to see in this study was that there were probably 11 different categories of partnerships between nonprofit and for-profit organizations. So loaned executives, uh, technology support, board members, etc. So very exciting news that the nonprofit and for-profit organizations were getting closer together. Well, Bruce, this is really fantastic news, and of course, for all of us, including you, uh, who have been out there for a number of years, really uh, uh, helping uh, charities realize the importance of these kinds of partnerships and the necessity uh, to look beyond just the dollar, uh, but to really look at the opportunities uh, to gain the support of our corporate community uh, on a variety of different levels. Uh, Bruce, where can people get a copy of the 2010 Report. Well, we're going to put it up on our website probably by the end of this week. As I said, we uh, just have the raw numbers that you're receiving first. Uh, we're going to put the official report together by the first of this, uh, or probably by the first of next week at the latest, being the obviously the holiday week. It will be at uh, Bruce Birch, B-U-R-T-C-H, BruceBirch.com. It'll be under the 2010 Birch Report, Cause Marketing Nonprofit Survey. So within the next seven days, we'll have all the information compiled and put in a way that can be downloaded free, of course, Ted, to all of your listeners uh, to get this updated survey. Well, that's terrific, and, and Bruce, we'll make sure that uh, we not only put a uh, listing in the radio links uh, for our next show, uh, but we'll also mention that on our next show, and you're giving me an opportunity to uh, uh, ask every one of our listeners to grab their calendar right now just to update their calendars on when the next show of the Nonprofit Coach will be. Uh, we are taking next week off. Uh, because the nonprofit coach will be up in Toronto uh, at the uh, annual AFP Congress. Uh, and so the next show uh, for the nonprofit coach will be on December 7th uh, at uh, 12 noon Eastern. And it sounds like that gives you plenty of time uh, to have that uh, posted so that we can mention it on the December 7th show. Is that right? That's right, Ted, and I appreciate that very much. And the one last thing that was very interesting in this report was that there were, and we asked a lot of viewpoints, and we still found out that there were tremendous misunderstandings of the role of the for-profit and non-profit relationship. And so while we're very, very pleased to see that more partnerships are coming together and the breadth of the partnerships are growing, there still is a serious need and you're doing a great service in helping uh, correct this, is to get nonprofits and for-profits to understand each other's language and understand each other's value proposition. There still is some work to be done in that area. 
Yeah, and I have to tell you, uh, the thing that I am most pleased that I can't wait to read the 2010 Birch Report uh, is that it does appear that charities are starting to get the message that it can't just be about dollars. It needs to be about partnerships, and partnerships come on a variety of different levels. So, Bruce Birch, thank you so much for coming back on the Nonprofit Coach, giving us a sneak peek of the uh, 2010 Birch Report. We can't wait to read all about it. Make sure you send me an email and let me know when that is posted and we'll make sure that all of our listeners uh, get a chance to download that uh, following our December 7th show. Uh, Bruce, thanks for joining us here on page one for the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you, Ted. Always good to be with you. Great. Thank you. Uh, back here on page one, we're back here on the news. Uh, just to remind you from uh, last week, for those of you uh, who were uh, with us last week, uh, we do, of course, have posted the podcast uh, for the fantastic show uh, that we had uh, our, a week before last, which was, uh, or, I'm sorry, last week, uh, Anna Yeager and Jim Lynch uh, were here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, that air date was November 9th, uh, and uh, I, I'm getting my weeks all mixed up because last week I was at the Dutch National Conference in Holland, so of course uh, you all know that we were off last week. But in that podcast, it will remind you uh, that we are talking about green tech, uh, reducing your environmental impact and saving money. Uh, these were experts that came to us uh, from uh, TechSoup Global and their green tech program. Well, in honor of that, uh, we have over the radio links today uh, Greenpeace's report on the Guide to Green Electronics, uh, and it's entitled, Who Will Be the First to Go Green? Uh, and this gives you an opportunity uh, to take a look at uh, the rankings of the uh, 18 top manufacturers of personal computers mobile phones, TVs, and game consoles, uh, and you'll find that over in the radio links uh, today at tedhartradio.com. Just a quick reminder, uh, as we're working through the page one news here, uh, that when we get to page two, you will have the opportunity to ask a question of our page two expert today, Tom Ahern, uh, and that number is 347 324-3080. Don't forget to press the number one. I do see people over the switchboard, but if you don't press number one, I'm not sure you want to raise your hand and ask a question. Also, we've got a lot of people over in the chat room today, uh, so please feel free to ask questions in the chat room or email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. Next up here on page one news is a note from Twitter. Uh, if you've not yet checked it out, uh, Twitter is, uh, I think, feeling a lot of pressure uh, from services like Hootsuite and uh, TweetDeck uh, and others who are really providing a much better service in the utilization of Twitter. And what they're doing now is they now have the new Twitter, what they're calling the new Twitter, uh, and uh, they've added a people tab. And what we're doing is sharing with you an article written about the new Twitter that comes to us from our favorite friends over at Mashable.com. And, of course, you'll find that link over in the radio links at TedHeartRadio.com. Uh, now, next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, a lot of you, uh, we get emails from you, and we know that you're frustrated, uh, that your boss doesn't seem to know much about the Internet. Uh, some of you feel like you're a lone voice in your organization, uh, trying to uh, help move uh, the online fundraising, social media agenda forward for your organization, and yet you have bosses who don't even understand the simplest aspects of browsers and the Internet. Well, we've got an interesting book for you that you can read that comes to us from the folks at Google, uh, and what they've done is they've put together a book uh, entitled 
uh, 20 Things I Learned About Browsers and the Web. And, of course, this is a free book. It's available to you over at the radio links at uh, tedhartradio.com. Uh, uh, next up here on the uh, Nonprofit Coach uh, is uh, a very interesting uh, uh, preview of a new service that uh, we want you all to stay attuned to uh, and understand that uh, the social media market is changing nearly every day. Uh, small charities uh, may get a leg up on social media over the nation's biggest nonprofits if Chris Hughes, who is a co-founder of Facebook, uh, gets his way. And he was an online architect for the very successful Barack Obama 2008 presidential campaign. What he's been doing uh, since that time, is lending his efforts uh, behind a new uh, social media platform exclusively developed for nonprofit organizations, and this is entitled Jumo, J-U-M-O, and you'll find this over in the radio links at tedhartradio.com, and this will officially uh, launch on June 30th. So, of course, you're smart enough to be here listening to the Nonprofit Coach and you get advance notice, you can go to jumo.com today uh, and just sign up for email updates and the good folks over at Jumo uh, will uh, uh, email you information on how you can start utilizing these services uh, that they will be launching uh, from Jumo, which are, again, specifically developed for nonprofit organizations, specifically geared towards helping smaller charities leverage the social media market. Well, now we've got, uh, I'm watching the clock here, and it is now time for us to prepare uh, for Tom Ahern to join us here on page two. Tom Ahern is considered one of North America's uh, most uh, prominent uh, and leading donor communications experts. He presents at conferences regularly uh, talking about how to write better uh, for fundraising, case statements, uh, using your newsletters to nurture relationships, uh, and uh, is often quoted by some of our leading experts in the nonprofit uh, sector uh, as someone to be listened to uh, and to understand what Tom Ahern is thinking. Uh, Tom also uh, works uh, very closely uh, with his lovely wife, uh, Simone Joyeau, uh who was our guest here on page two uh, for the Nonprofit Coach. You can check us out uh, at tedhartradio.com for Simone's podcast. Uh, the original air date was September 28th. Welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach, Tom Ahern. Hello, Ted. How are you doing? Hey, Tom. Great to have you on the show. I just have to... Uh, uh, say that this has got to be a tribute to you uh, as a master communicator, uh, that we uh, now have a record number of people over in the chat room today. Uh, we have emails already uh, coming in to us uh, asking questions, uh, and uh, uh, that's got to be an, uh, a tribute to you as a communicator uh, that people want to come and hear all about your thoughts. <laughs> well, I'll be sure to tell Smun that I set the record. Thank you, Ted. Well, I, I, you did. I, I'm not sure if there's a competition there uh, between the two of you, but certainly has set a, a record here uh, for the number of people in the chat room for the nonprofit coach. So 
I want to get right into uh, the show because there is, of course, a lot to talk about today. Year-end communications are so important uh, for uh, charitable organizations and particularly smaller organizations that don't have budgets or staff to be able to do it twice or to get an opportunity to do a do-over. So mistakes made at year-end really can uh, be detrimental to an organization in the new year. Can you share with us your best advice to our listeners for right now on November 22, 2010, what charities should be doing between now and the end of uh, this calendar year uh, to communicate well and to prepare themselves for 2011? Yeah, um, one thing is you want to get your hands on the nearest time machine and go back to August when you actually are typically writing these letters. I got a a call from a charity the other day, uh, in, it's now November 22nd, they were calling a few days ago saying, can you help us? And right now I'm writing letters for March of 2011. So uh, you're... you're you have to get ahead of these things. And the other thing I would say in terms of uh, what, you know, Ted has called it year-end appeals, uh, they're very important, but they're just part of a much more frequent calendar of appeals. Uh, Typically with your existing donors, you would be asking for money at least three to six times a year. Now, another thing is well, Tom, let, me, have... let me stop you right let me, let me, oh, sure let me stop you right there because uh what you just said I think is very significant because uh, again you do this all the time and you're an expert in this area but I think for a lot of charities they struggle with that question of frequency and you just said that as a professional you advise communication with your donors at least 3 to 6 times a year uh help us understand what kind of communication uh and uh what is it just every couple of months, or are there peaks and valleys in the communication for the donor cycle? Sure, it did. Um, there's a certain rhythm to donor communications. You ask, you thank, then you report, and you cycle through that regularly during the year. Now, uh, often I think there's a misunderstanding. When people hear about annual appeals, they assume that means you're only asking once. That's where the word annual comes from. But in fact, the word annual comes from the from the um, purpose of these appeals, which is to fund your annual operating expenses at the nonprofit. You can actually be appealing for annual operating money all year round, and you should. The, um, the charities that only get in touch once a year are essentially forgotten and you know become diminished their brand they they just kind of disappear most of that time now at this time of the year just let's look at my own mail flow here because Simon and I uh, give to many charities um we are going to be getting in the mail something like 10 to 20 appeals every day until the end of the year. To stand out of that mail flow is very difficult. To put all your eggs into that one basket is, I think, asking a lot of your donors. I would prefer uh, charities at a minimum to at least go out three times a year and ask. But asking is not the whole story. That is not your job exclusively as a fundraiser, is to assemble money. 
The other job you have as a fundraiser is to retain donors, and the way you do that is by reporting back to them what wonderful things were accomplished in the community thanks to donor support. Well, in doing that, uh, uh, Tom, I do want to draw uh, people's attention uh, to the fantastic book that you and Simone wrote uh, entitled Keep Your Donors, uh, A Guide to Better Communications and Stronger Relations. And I think that's really the essence of what you're saying here, isn't it? Uh, as you point out in your book, it's all about those relationships, and it's really impossible uh, to build a relationship when you communicate once a year. Absolutely. And, you know, your your previous guest, Bruce Burge, uh, talked about partnerships. And he, I think in that context, was talking about partnerships perhaps with corporations that cause related marketing. But you need to have partnerships with your donors as well. The, um, the typical uh, framing of the message from nonprofits that I see, and this is based on examining, analyzing hundreds of pieces a year, is that the nonprofit is doing great work. And if the donor sent in a check, well, thanks. You have to switch that uh, approach and frame it this way, that thanks to your support, we were able to do these wonderful things. And without your support, just as important, we cannot do these wonderful things. So you're shifting the responsibility for all the good that your organization does in the world onto the shoulders of the donors. Very important shift because it follows Adrian Sargent's findings in his work, his research, which found that people will stay loyal more often, donors will stay more loyal, if they believe that somebody will be hurt if they do not continue to give. Unless you shift the responsibility onto their shoulders, they will not uh, internalize that feeling. Yeah, and this goes back to one of the things that I've shared here on the Nonprofit Coach so many times is that needing money is not enough. Uh, there are so many charities and everybody needs money. The question is, how do you make that case for support? Uh, and that's, that's a very important uh, topic uh, in your book as well. And I was wondering, uh, in, your, uh, in your book, uh, in Chapter 6 uh, of, uh, of your book, Keep Your Donors, uh, you mention avoiding the one-step cold sell. Uh, and I know that this uh, this was, uh, I think, an interaction between uh, our mutual friend, uh, John Jasinski, who I'll actually see in Toronto uh, next week. And I think maybe it's a Simone uh, who had the, uh, uh, the interaction there where they were talking about uh, this real problem in the, in the charitable sector uh, about the one-step cold sell. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners about that and why they should avoid it. Well, uh, yes, although, honestly, Ted, I am not an expert. What I uh, point out often, uh, particularly when someone's in the room, is that I have never uh, tried to fundraise. I write fundraising materials for my clients, and they are the experts, and they are the interface between the organization uh, and the uh, prospective donor, not me. And what I do is I ask them, well, how does, for instance, in a capital campaign, when you're asking for major dollars from somebody, what's it like in the room? Because they're asking me, for instance, to write a case statement for them, which is going to tell the story of this campaign. And I want to know, before I build any communications tool, 
who is the audience? How do you interact with that audience? What kind of questions does the audience have? You know, what is actually happening? Because this is a tool. It has to be custom created for the situation in that ask. So the you know the once the 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 old um, kind of approach toward marketing and I, and I want to say here because I don't think this is well understood that fundraising is just another type of marketing. I had one college uh, client that brought me in to speak to their deans and so forth, and they said, but there's one thing you cannot mention when you get in front of these people, and that is the word selling they will react very negatively to the idea that they are selling their story to prospective donors. And at that point, you know, you have to ask, well, what business is it that you think you're in? You are trying to sell something which is very difficult, which is an intangible. You know, the feeling of having helped somebody in the world or in your local community, of having brought something into the community that perhaps wasn't there before, of having healed somebody that was hurting. All those things are what you're selling. You're selling the feeling of being making a difference in the world. And you've got to embrace that because the more you understand about selling, the more effective you are going to be as a fundraiser. Absolutely, absolutely. And those are so important. Uh, we've got a question here, uh, Tom, uh, from the chat room. Roger Brown is over in the chat room, and he's asking, uh, if we are planning an appeal before the end of the year, how do we stand out among the nonprofit clutter? And, of course, you just mentioned that you and Simone uh, support a number of charities. You're expecting a number of pitches uh, that are going to come into your post box and your inbox uh, between now and the end of the year. What do you look for, and what advice do you have for our listeners to stand out? Yeah, well, you know, it's there isn't one answer to this, but you have to understand the situation you're in. That is a mass of mail coming in, uh, and you're part of that. Now, do you are you part of a big parade and everybody's wearing the same uniform? One of the interesting things we do is we take the mail that we don't respond to in this giving season and spread it out on the table and look at it visually to see what distinguishes this from that. And unfortunately, because a lot of charities, uh, particularly the larger charities, are all serviced by the same, you know, relative handful of well-trained people. A lot of their stuff kind of looks the same. And the first thing you have to be is different. And whatever form that takes. Now, another thing you have to realize is how direct mail actually works. Uh, the purpose of an envelope is to get opened. It has no other purpose. It is not to protect the contents. If you do not get that envelope opened, then you can't go any further in the process of trying to persuade someone to make you a gift. So, so let's focus put on up, the envelope, Tom. Let's focus on the envelope. How do charities get that envelope opened? Okay. I'm looking at an example of an envelope for a local charity that did extraordinarily well. They had a very small database, uh, but people who did like them very much, and they had, however, never really managed to say the right thing and raise much money before. So last year, 
what they sent was a screaming uh, school bus yellow envelope, and on the outside of it, it said, Are you a steel yard true believer? Question mark. Open this. And it was in big, bold type, and the words open this with an exclamation point were in bright red. So when you look at this among uh, a mob of just, you know, uh, white envelopes, the color alone makes it jump out. But then the message it has is actually more complex than it may seem. It, when you say, are you a true believer, you are uh, pulling an emotional trigger called salvation, which is a little, I won't get into it today, but it's one of the seven primary emotional triggers that direct mail industry uses frequently to, to stimulate response. And it's the true believer part. You know, people get this. They are on the mailing list for a reason because they have attended an event, they've gone to a course, a workshop here, or they somehow are part of the quote-unquote family. And they get this, and now mentally they're saying, am I a true believer? And the answer for a lot of them was, absolutely, they, I love these people. And then right immediately after, on the envelope, it says, open this. Now, that is there because your biggest problem in direct mail and in all fundraising where you're doing retail is inertia, is getting somebody to actually act, to to take the time. Making folks feel, feel a part of the community, right? Making them feel like by doing this, I'm joining with others and I can really make a difference. Oh, absolutely. You want to, and this is this is the thing you are giving back to this is what fundraisers and organizations are giving to their donors is this feeling of being inside what Seth Godin calls a tribe. You know, you are part of this. You are not just a fan sending in money. You are actually part of the team, and we exactly. cannot do it without you. And, and one of the concepts that you share in your book is is the concept of focusing on the predisposed uh, those who you have uh, researched or found, or as you said, they're, they're in your database. They're there for a reason. Let them know that they're there uh, for a reason. Well, those are important concepts, and uh, Tom, we're going to be right back. We're just going to take uh, a little bit of uh, a break here. I just want to share with you, as uh, we have uh, for the last uh, several shows, uh, I'm very impressed with the work being done by the American uh, Express uh, Members Project. Uh, and you can find that uh, at takepart.com forward slash members projects. Uh, and for those of you who are Gleeks, uh, who uh, are uh, uh, fans of the show uh, Glee, you know that they've partnered up with them as a way to draw attention uh, to volunteering and donating, uh, and that you're able to vote uh, in the Members Project uh, program uh, to help direct over $200,000 in donations. And as a way to draw attention to that, uh, they have this rivalry uh, that you can follow on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash members project, uh, between uh, Sue Sylvester uh, and Mr. Shu. And uh, Sue, of course, being the more negative uh, and sarcastic person, uh, we have a message here on the Nonprofit Coach from Sue Sylvester of Glee regarding volunteerism. 
From the rainforests of South America to the classrooms of our inner cities, from the Purple Mountain's majesty to the fruity plain with amber waves of whatever, we could fight to make the world a better place if we only knew why. Think about it. What do animals do except poof on your lawn and make you feel guilty about how delicious they are? Why should children be burdened by the tyranny of reading? Words are hard. The arts? They don't need your support. What artists do need is soap. Seriously, the next time you meet an artist, smell it. I swear they rub their armpits with onions. People are always saying, get involved. Well, to them, I say, sure, I'll take a stand for as long as it takes me to find a comfy chair. That feels good. Well, Sue is, uh, is always sarcastic, uh, and uh, what we want to draw your attention to is in this particular campaign, uh, the message is don't be a Sue, uh, and make sure that you are doing what you can, particularly here at year-end, to volunteer and to give. Uh, check out this information, uh, American Express Members uh, Project. Uh, back here with uh, uh, Tom Ahern, another thing that I want to just note to you uh, is I want to say thank you to Steve Watts, uh, that's W-A-N-T-Z, uh, who just today uh, uh, clicked on the button at tedhartradio.com and noted that we are one of his favorites and that they are, he is following the show. Of course, you can do that as well. So Steve joining us uh, as one of the fans over here at tedhartradio.com. Tom, back here uh, uh, to you and uh, the wonderful messages that you're providing uh, to us today. Uh, you were mentioning some of those standard things that charities need to keep in mind as they're preparing their communications throughout the year. And, of course, uh, right at this moment, we're all focused on year-end communication. You mentioned color as being uh, an important uh, differentiating factor, and I'm reminded back to Roger Brown's question here. What are some of the other factors beyond color that you look to to differentiate communication. Yeah, actually, uh, let's not get too focused on color. If all the other envelopes were yellow, then the yellow envelope wouldn't matter. What you want to be is different. And however that is expressed, I'll, I'll give you another example. Now, this is an appeal that I personally responded to. It was from Smile Train. And Smile Train, as you probably know, big charity, lots of advertising. They have seemingly a bottomless advertising budget. They just run into them all over the place, and they keep sending mail. And I pretty much uh, I notice them because they always have a picture of a child with a cleft palate, and so, you know, it is it does stand out, but I never responded. And uh, finally, one day, a piece of mail showed up from Smile Train, and it says, it has a, the standard picture of the child, but it also says right next to that, right over my name, make one gift now and will never ask for another donation again. I thought, okay, now these people understand the mentality of the person on the receiving end, they are paying tribute to it by making an offer which I will find probably fairly intriguing. After all, we are all over-solicited. I won't get into it, but just accept this, that it is a crazy world we live in because of the messaging, because of the new channels, because the Internet now absorbs 13 hours of our of our week in the United States if you're an adult. There are so many things competing for your headspace. 
And this one came in and actually went right to the heart, not because of the child with the cleft palate, which is a sad, tragic, and ugly thing to look at, but because it said, look, we understand this is intrusive. Just do it once and you'll never hear from us again if you choose. And so I thought, well, okay, this is this is an appeal I can work with. I opened it up and what I learned in there was quite amazing because I thought, well, it's a surgery, it must cost a ton of money. It turns out it only costs two hundred and fifty dollars to fix this kid's face. And when I saw that amount, which is relatively uh, affordable, I thought, absolutely, I can actually change one child by writing out a check for 250 bucks, and they will never contact me again. Now, the trick, or if you want to call it that, the um, is that on the reply device, they have basically two boxes. One box says, check here if you never want to hear from us again. The other box says something like, Check here if you would like to continue to receive, uh, you know, updates from Smile Train. And of course, I'm I'm in marketing, so I know how these things work. And I know that once I've written a check for two hundred fifty dollars, I now feel like I'm part of the family. So of course, I check the box that says, "Sure, send me more information or keep me informed," and they do. Now. <clears throat> That is the thing that made this one stand out because they made an offer to me as a donor that I had never, ever seen before, the offer being that they would totally go away if I made that one gift. Well, that's that's very interesting because, of course, when you first said that, I think uh, myself, along with uh, most of our listeners, were you know cringing at the suggestion uh, that you would ever make that pledge. But what you're saying is, just making the pledge uh, made you more friendly or more approachable, got you to open the the envelope. And what they're betting on is that you're not going to take them up on that offer. Of course, they have to honor that if if you do a one-time gift is all that you'll get. But what you're saying is, as a good marketer, uh, they were making a, a pretty safe bet that once you've written that check, you're not going to say, take my check and now go away. Yeah, and actually, I, I think I'm saying something else too, Ted, which is that we tend to think of our um, donors as a, uh, a, I don't know, kind of an open pit mine of money. And we hate to lose, you know, even one of them. And I, I believe that what that leads to is a transaction mentality. The uh, place where I actually ran across this kind of approach first was in Adrian Sargent's first book when he was still in the UK. I think it's Donor Loyalty. I'm not quite sure of the title. I don't want to get him confused with some other book. But in there, he talked about a test that was done in England with direct mail. And it um, it did this. When when this charity, whatever the charity was, acquired a new donor, they would then send a, a, a little card to that donor saying, how would you like to be communicated with? Oh, would you like to hear from us, let's say, once a year? Would you like to get our newsletters, et cetera, et cetera? Also on the card, and this was the counterintuitive part, is a box that says, basically, I never want to hear from you again. Now, a few curmudgeons, of course, who forgotten that even given to this charity did check that box. But what they found longitudinally a few years down the road was that the 
the new donors they acquired and then asked how they wished to be communicated with became much more solid donors. They didn't leave as quickly. Their average gift was higher. This is all in Adrian's book, and I have used that same uh, kind of insight in my own work with some of my clients where we make it very clear up front that we're asking for them to make a choice and a decision and all the options are laid out in front of them so that we don't try to paint them into a corner. We don't try to, you know, bring them to a point where uh, they, you know, have to make some definitive yes, no. It's it's more of a collaboration, um, and this idea that you are, you know, first of all, it's a bad idea in direct mail to think that you're ever going to have most people. Most people throw most of their mail away most of the time, whether they know you, like you, or hate you. It's That's the action that you're working with. And if you look at response rates to direct mail, the expectation for a successful direct mail acquisition campaign is one half of 1%. So for every 200 pieces you send out, you're only going to get one gift back. That is a brutal environment to be even have this 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 construct in your head that for some for some reason you should never mention or you, you know what the smile train people did where you you know give us one gift and we'll, you'll never hear from us again that's just not realityville right and and of course uh, uh Tom I think you're referring to uh, uh Adrian Sargent and Elaine Jay's book Building Donor Loyalty uh, from it. 2004, that's the one that you're, and that's a fundraiser's guide to increasing lifetime value. And I agree with you; that's a, a fantastic book, and I'm glad uh, it's one that uh, that you follow as well. Uh, Tom, we do uh, have a, a question uh, here uh, coming to us from email, uh, and I think this uh, dovetails with uh, what you were just saying. Uh, and uh, I think it's a, a question that gets asked a lot. Uh, Tom, is direct mail dead? Is direct mail dead? Um, well, it uh, it isn't, no. Um, it is deadly boring, and I can attest to that being on the receiving end, as all of us are. I mean, we're all direct mail experts in a way because we are on the receiving end, and people hate it. It's no surprise because it is repetitive, It uh, you know, all of it looks alike, etc. But direct mail is still the number one way to get into most homes. And what you have to be aware of is the environment you're in. You have one to three seconds to hook me. That's what the research shows. And the what happens is that most people are not good guests. They start talking about themselves instead of trying to put the uh, host, which is the person receiving the direct mail, at ease and making them happy, telling them stories, being entertaining to them. Uh, when you start to do this, you're going to find a very different result from your direct mail. When you are no longer boring, I'm surprised, actually, I, uh, a couple of years ago, I set out to answer one question, which was, uh, is direct mail for possible? Is it a good thing for local charities to do? After all, they do not have these mass mailings that allow you to to bring in a significant amount of money from an infinitesimal amount of response. So can you do it locally? It doesn't even make sense. Is it worth the money? And um, I didn't really have an answer to that question. I had a couple of examples of people that I thought had, you know, done amazingly well with it, local charities. I went on the road with this and started showing um, 
smaller organizations, how direct mail actually works, what the key points were, what the key obstacles were, why direct mail exists in the first place, uh, showing them lots of examples. And what has happened since then amazes me. It just amazes me because most of the people I'm speaking to are not professional writers. They are not trained up to the point they take this workshop, and yet they are having extraordinary results. You know, I have a little library down in Connecticut that raised tens of thousands of dollars from the local community for the very first time ever because they wrote a good, authentic, friendly, conversational letter. I this the letter I was uh, talk, talking about the envelope before from the Steel Yard. That's a small arts organization. Um, I'm just looking at a letter today from a health center up in uh, Western Connecticut, which is an extraordinary letter. And it goes on and on. People are having great results, but you have to apply the basic principles. And the first principle is a letter is not a direct mail fundraising appeal is not about the organization. It is about well, the I donor. Think that's, something and, that, that, that's something that you're you're signaling out here, and I think it goes back to the the earlier questions that were asked today: is what's some of the things that that will make you stand out? And what it sounds like you're saying is we really need to put a focus on the reader uh, and not necessarily a focus on the charity. Exactly right. I mean, charity is probably the probably the co most common mistake I see, Ted, is. Uh, charities use their direct mail appeals as if they are brochures. They start listing their programs. Sometimes these programs have weird, funny names that only the insiders understand. Nobody really cares about that. Certainly, they don't do not care about your statistics. What they care about is: Am I going to? Do I feel good because you have made this offer to me where I can participate in the community's welfare somehow? And if you get that across, and it has to be done very conversationally, another thing that you see in direct mail letters a lot is two signatures at the end of the letter. Well, that's just, you know, that blows the entire premise apart because you can't have a conversation where you have the I, uh, the person receiving the letter, or I'm sorry, the you, and then the I is actually the two people, the chairman of the board and the executive director. It's not craziness like that. Um, you, you know, this is... Just sitting down with somebody, having a very simple conversation with them, and seeing if their interests are a good match with what you have to offer. Because another misconception is that everybody cares about you. And, and the truth is, they don't. And even if they were willing to make a first date gift, let's say of 25 bucks, you are probably not going to be a very high priority for them, at least at the beginning, because you have to earn that high priority status. Right. And, Tom, one of the things that, that I often share in, in, uh, in my lectures, and I, I'd be interested to get your, uh, your read on this, is I, I try to find a way to help charities understand the nature of the conversation that they should have uh, with the donor. And what, the premise that, that I try to set up is think of it this way. Each of your donors, if you have made a strong enough case that you matter, that the work that you are doing is important, what they're trying to determine is, if, if you're that important, I would leave my job, stop doing what I'm doing, and go and help you feed those children, educate that community, help do whatever, dig that ditch or whatever it is that, that you're doing. But I can't. 
I have a full-time job. I have a, a family. And so what I'm doing is I'm giving you money to help ensure that that dream, that that premise that you have made me care about will in fact happen and that that's the nature of the transfer between or the conversation between the charity uh, and the donor is that I'm essentially giving you money to help you make something happen, but it's not that you need the money. It's what you're going to do with it. Yeah, I think actually that's pretty brilliant, Ted, and I'll be stealing that right away. Um, <laughs> well, feel free, feel free to say, as Ted Hart says. Uh, <laughs> well, but, of course. Uh, no, uh, oh, I, I steal always with attribution. That's very important. Yeah, so, so, um, that's, so that's a premise that you agree with in terms of good communication. Uh, yeah, I you know, my basic orientation now, and this is a, a development over the last couple of years, I have one client that allows me pretty much to write whatever I want. And they ask me to write a lot of direct mail. So what I've been exploring with them is how far can we push donor centricity? How much donor love can we pack into a letter? You know, is can we make a real flattery bath out of it? That's my personal term for it. Um, because I feel that from an emotional standpoint, that is what will work best, and I, you know, the results are there to back up that belief. And basically, it comes down to this: you have to love them, the donor, if you expect them to love you. So, talking about yourself all the time is just bad behavior. Uh, what you want to be doing, and I, the, you know, my 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 personal guiding you know, rule of thumb is I am an entertainer when I'm writing direct mail. My job is to entertain the reader. And I do that in several ways. One is I use the oldest form of entertainment on earth, which is tell stories. And I make them quick stories and I make them dramatic stories, but they, they it's not war and peace. It's just a, you know, quick, quick little detail, 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 taking people from the beginning to the middle to the end. And, Inter, you know, packed into that between the pieces of the story is all this donor flattery, and it's not insincere flattery. It is we cannot do this job without you types of flattery. And I think a lot of times, and I see this all the time. In fact, charities sort of leave the donor out of the picture as if they were, you know, an accidental inconvenience. Um, you know, particularly I look at capital campaigns. My God, you're trying to raise $150 million, and yet nowhere in this case statement that you've presented do you ever mention the donor? I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah. So the, the real message that you bring to us today, uh, Tom Ahern, uh, is one of putting the donor at the center of the communication, uh, making sure that it's not all about you. It's almost like, you know, how successful do you think you're going to be if you're on a date with somebody and all you do is talk about yourself? Absolutely. Do you really think that they're going to fall in love with you? Do you really think that they're going to want to even spend more time with you if it's always about me, 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 me? Yeah, one of the things that um, Saman has been preaching for a while and uh, is very good practice is to schedule uh, phone talks, conversations with your donors uh, on a regular basis. So every week you're going to talk to five donors. The whole purpose of this is not to talk to them, but to listen to them and have them tell you things. And I guarantee you that within a few phone calls, you're going to go, oh, my word, this is amazing stuff. I have learned so much. 
Well, Tom, thank you for uh, you and Simone and all the work that you do in reminding us that we need to listen more, talk less, and put our donors at the center of what we do. Thank you so much for joining us here today on The Nonprofit Coach. Tom Ahern, nationally recognized expert uh, in donor communication. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Ted. And uh, last up here on the Nonprofit Coach, as we wrap up, is just to remind you that our next show is on December 7th. Page 2 expert will be Penelope Burke. I will see you back here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, with Ted Hart on December 7th with Penelope Burke. Thank you for joining us today. Have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. Take care. Bye. Lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.